HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everybody, and welcome to The Farm Report, where we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production each week. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Today, we're revisiting the narrative of the American farm worker. When it comes to farm workers, there are some complex issues at hand. The history of the labor movement, immigration, fair wages for farm workers, fair prices for farmers... Today, we're going to learn a little more about the world of present-day farm workers regarding wages, housing, work conditions. No way around it. There's a lot of ground to cover, and we certainly won't get through all of it. To shed some context on this topic, I've brought two different guests today, um, both from big agricultural states. Joining me first is Brian Little, calling in from California. In the second part of the show, I'll be speaking with Elizabeth Henderson from New York. Brian serves as the Director of Employment Policy for the California Farm Bureau Federation, which is California's largest farm organization, representing more than 53,000 agricultural associate and collegiate members in 56 counties throughout the state. Through this role, he represents Farm Bureau members on legislative, congressional, and regulatory issues involving immigration and labor policy. Brian served with the U.S. Department of Labor from December 2001 to May 2008, first as a Congressional Relations Officer and later as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Occupational Safety and Health. And prior to joining the Department of Labor, Brian was Senior Director for Governmental Affairs for the American Farm Bureau Federation in D.C. Brian, welcome to the Farm Report. Thank you. Um, So I just wanted to start to learn by learning a little bit more about who the Farm Bureau represents. You have 53,000 different members throughout the state. So who is that membership and what is your role with the organization? 
Well, Farm Bureau's membership are basically your family farmer. So it's everybody who uh, grows vegetables, grows tree fruit, uh, grows, uh, raises dairy products, all that stuff. Uh, the vast majority of our members are involved in family-owned and operated farm businesses of various kinds. Uh, and the Farm Bureau's purpose, among other things, is to try to help improve the economic conditions for those farm families so they can support their families, uh, hire people, provide jobs, and do all the things we want small businesses to be able to do. Um, and so you and you work specifically with the labor um, policy division of the organization. I'm the person that handles uh, labor and employment policy. That's right. All right. So um, I just wanted to just set up for people who didn't know um, who the Farm Bureau was or what they did. But now I want to jump a little bit into some of the specifics um, of labor and kind of hone it into to California, though you've worked with the Bureau nationally, kind of to give people a little bit of a microcosm, although California is a pretty big ag state. So according to um, 2007 ag census data, nearly a quarter of farm and ranch operators in the U.S. employed farm labor. So um, expenses for the hired farm labor as a percent of the total farm production expenses were highest in the coastal states. So East Coast and West Coast, California obviously being one of the big ag states. And these this is largely because there's a high concentration of farms that produce fruit, vegetables, flowers, nursery crops, some of the crops that are less mechanized and require more hand labor. So what does the agricultural landscape in California look like in terms of crops being grown that require hired labor? Well, you uh, said that California is one of the biggest ag states. Actually, California is the biggest ag state. Our farm gate value is the highest of any state in the country. We have a couple of counties in California that produce more than several states do. And if you put uh, Illinois and Texas together, you'd have a farm state that's about as big as California in terms of the value of what they produce. And what the uh, employment landscape looks like for our industry is, as you noted, we grow a lot of commodities here that absolutely require the work of human hands to be able to plant, cultivate, and harvest those commodities. And as a result, we employ about 400,000 farm workers every year during the peak seasons. usually starts to ramp up in April and May. It uh, gets to be its heaviest levels of employment in August, September. starts to taper off in October. Uh, and then there are that cycle starts all over again uh, in the early, late spring and early summer. So um, who, uh, who accounts for these laborers? How are California farmers meeting their labor needs? The, the state um, you know, it shares a border with Mexico and has a long history of employing immigrants for its agricultural workforce. Is this still the 400,000 people that are being employed throughout the, the growing season? Who are they? Well, many of those workers are people who did emigrate to the United States, uh, in some cases, a few years ago. Right now, the border is getting to be very unporous, and it's getting to be very difficult to get across. That's partly because of enforcement going on in border areas, uh, because of criminal violence happening in the areas where workers formerly used to pass through. So the workforce we have now seems to be a workforce that's largely settled out. They are living in, com in rural communities. Uh, their own homes or rent homes, they're sending their kids to the local schools, and they will commute some significant distances sometimes to do agricultural work. But, for example, you might have a family living in a town like Gonzales in the Salinas Valley 
that would commute all around from maybe as far north, uh, up to as far north as the south end of the peninsula at San Jose, all the way down into King City. And what, is, uh, and what does that look like? About, I don't know, 100 miles or so. One uh, way? So they'll, they'll do that. They'll sort of do that kind of movement around uh, an area where they live. But they tend there tends to be less and less of people who will move from the extreme southern part of California all the way to Washington State and then back again. And when you're saying they people will move these big dif- distances throughout the state, are you speaking seasonally? Like they'll get hired at one operation when it starts to ramp up in April and May, and by October they might be employed on a different crop that has come into harvest needs? Or what do you mean by that? No, what happens a lot of times is some of these crops wind up having fairly long growing seasons because of the climate we have in California. So uh, California producers in the Salinas Valley, to give you the same example again, produce leafy greens for about nine months out of the year and it's then the, they leave the and they salad go to bowl of the u.s and yuma and they will produce there and then they'll come back to salinas again in february so they the people that live in that area will have employment in agriculture for about nine months out of the year uh and some of them will go to the imperial valley with those employers when they move their operations down there as well uh then there are other fill-in jobs that people can get sometimes in different crops uh, sometimes in different industries but they tend many many of the workers tend to remain in the same communities year round. Um, so, are these workers, um, in, in terms of, are they hired directly by the farms? Or are they coming in um, from different avenues? I think mostly. I, I think you're going to say they're mostly hired directly by the farms because the it's shifted over time. Where in the past. Um, you're saying a large amount of the workers have resettled to this area, but in the past, a lot of employment might have been coming through guest worker programs that allowed people to come in on visas for employment. Do you have a- Well, actually, there are two things going on there. One is that there's been growth in the last 25 or 30 years or so in the use of farm labor contractors. Farm labor contractors have the ability to be sort of an information conduit in the labor market and be able to provide workers with jobs for a longer part of the year if they want to work more than nine or ten months out of the year. And they also provide agricultural employers, growers, with the ability to get labor on a relatively short-term basis if they need it. And that's pretty important for some commodities like cherries and asparagus and other things like that that have very short harvest seasons. Uh, The other thing that has happened also is that while use of the H-2A guest worker program California has historically been fairly low. In the last couple of years, it's been increasing significantly. Hmm. Labor markets have gotten very tight, particularly in the coastal areas. And so, and there's a fair amount of agriculture in those coastal counties. So there's been some uh, increased usage of the H-2A program. It's still, if you look at a labor force of 450,000, it's still around 9,000 or so H-2A workers. So it's not a significant uh, um, proportion of the labor force that we employ. But considering that five years ago it was down about 500, uh, you can see there's been some significant growth there. So why? what do you think the changes are? Why did it drop and why is it on the rise? Well, it had been, it had been historically low. And then in recent years, uh, the, the border being relatively tight, uh, no new workers coming in, or very few new workers coming in from Mexico, Equated to equated to us having some shortages of workers in those coastal counties, and that's when the growers over there started to turn to the H-2A program to try to be able to get workers in. Uh, one of, the, of course, that's not exactly been a perfect solution to the problem because 
the H-2A program suffers from some very serious uh, bureaucratic delays. And so a great many growers who are trying to use the H-2A program both last year and this year have experienced huge delays in getting workers into the country at the time that they need them. Uh, and as you know, agriculture is extremely seasonal. If you can't do the work that needs to be done when it needs to be done because your workers aren't there, you're going to lose your crop. And that's a problem that a lot of growers who are trying to rely on the H-2A program have had over the last couple of years. Do you have any inclination as to what the the nature of the bureaucratic delays? I think I think a big part of it is because the agencies that have to administer the H-2A program, which are three different federal departments, so you have to get your applications through three different federal departments in order to use, be able to employ H-2A workers. Uh, so I think they're understaffed. I think they didn't anticipate the growth in interest in the program because not only is it growing in California, but it's growing nationally as well. Uh, and they didn't staff up and didn't do what they needed to do to be ready for that growth. So I think that's probably a lot of what's happening. Uh, last year, the problems was simply a computer system breakdown. Uh, the State Department's visa, uh, visa issuance computer system that matches up people who apply for visas and their biometric identifiers with their visa application. That program completely broke down last year, and for weeks, no visas were being issued by the Department of State. So you had tourists, business people, students, literally thousands of people who couldn't get visas to get in the United States for a period of about six weeks, hmm. and RH2A workers got caught up in that mess last spring. Um, so. I just uh, I was reading some data that the California Farm Bureau had published in in regarding to the shortness of farm workers that you had done a survey in 2012 um, and published a subsequent report called Walking the Tightrope California Farmers Struggle with Employee Shortages and it it's you know outlines with some data what you're saying like um, 61% of approximately 800 farmer survey respondents surveyed um, stated they were experiencing worker shortages. So some of these strategies um, outside of maybe bringing in the H-2A guest workers um, listed in the report were delaying harvest to avoid competing with other farms for labor, increasing mechanization to rely less on labor. And the one that I'm, I'm kind of drawing up to is increasing farm wager, wages to incentivize workers to stay on. So the state minimum wage has been $10 an hour. And I'm not sure exactly how that works in terms of farm workers because sometimes um, it's my understanding that they do piece rate work as well as hourly wages. Maybe you could explain that. Well, if you're being paid, if you're if if an ag employer is using or any employer for that matter is using a piece rate compensation system, uh, the worker gets paid by how many pieces of work they produce, how many uh, bins of grapes they harvest, or how many boxes of lettuce they cut and wrap. And, uh, and get ready to go to market. So, uh, the, but the employer is still responsible for ensuring that that worker earns at least a minimum wage for every hour that they work. So even if they don't produce enough to be able to earn the minimum wage on their own on the basis of pieces they produce, the employer is still responsible for making sure that they earn at least the minimum wage. But with piece rate compensation, usually most workers earn considerably more than minimum wage, like 15 to $20 an hour sometimes. So that piece rate compensation is a very attractive proposition for many agricultural workers. They, they like it, and sometimes growers find they have a hard time recruiting workers if they don't offer piece rate compensation. Hmm. Um, so 
er, earlier this week, um, California's governor, Jerry Brown, struck a deal to raise the hourly minimum um, to $15 an hour by 2022, which I guess would then um, go towards more of this, what you're saying, some of the piece rate workers can earn an hour. So would this, do you think the increase in the state minimum wage to $15 an hour, would that be one of the, would that help with labor shortage is that farmers are facing? I I don't really know. Uh, what I do know is that I think agricultural employers, like all employers, uh, are going to have to figure out a way to absorb that cost associated with raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And as you alluded at the beginning of the program, farmers don't have the kind of economic leverage in the marketplace that allow them to simply increase their prices to make up for these additional costs that they have to bear. Uh, then there are other things as well that farmers have been struggling with in California over the last few years. The cost of many of their inputs, things like feed, fertilizer, uh, crop protection chemicals, things like that, have increased by a third over the last five years. <clears throat> if you keep increasing what it costs you to produce something, even if you get a record price for it at market when you go to sell it, you still have difficulty being able to make a profit. And if you're not doing that, what's the point in producing it? Um, so are there other, um, are there any pieces of policy that um, the California Farm Bureau that you're working on or that you know um, that's in effect that might help um farmers negotiate better prices or change that? Like, what are some of the answers if raising the minimum wage is going to... So you have you have two kind of competing interests. You have raising the minimum wage to help um, laborers in this example um, have a living wage, and then you've got the cost that needs to be absorbed by the farmers um, that might be a competing interest because they want to keep their, their margins... Um, in, in a way that they're going to profit off of their crops and keep their businesses going. So what are, what are some of the solutions to that on a policy level? Well, I think one thing that might be a possible solution to the problem on a policy level would be uh, that I, I, I joke sometimes with legislative staffers that I feel like I know pretty well that it would be nice if you guys, I'm talking about California state legislative staffers, it would be nice if you guys could just stop for a year just give us a year off and let us let our members catch up with what you've been doing for the last few years. Because in the last five years, employers of all kinds, including ag employers, have had additional costs associated with the Affordable Care Act, with our new paid sick leave mandate in California, with our some new rules about how you have to compensate piece rate wages, now an increase in the minimum wage. Uh, the legislature probably in the near future is going to be debating legislation to require us to pay overtime after eight hours in a day instead of 10 hours in a day. Keep in mind the federal law doesn't require payment of overtime at all for agricultural workers. California is one of four states that does, and we have one of the most generous overtime policies in the country. If you keep piling these costs on top of agricultural employers, you eventually never get caught up with what you can make on the cost, on the cost of the product. And I don't know that there's a policy solution to be had that would somehow uh, create a, a situation where farmers get more, a bigger slice of the pie uh, of the of the of of what that the, the amount of money generated by the sale of that product. Um, on the on the other hand, some of these um, changes that your a membership at, through the Farm Bureau are trying to catch up with, do you see these things coming into effect in a way that's helpful to the people that they're employing? 
like having suppose, like I having. I suppose you could argue. I suppose you could argue that, but the problem is if they don't, if if we can't employ them because of these changes in policy, how have the workers benefited from that? Um. Yeah, so what are some of the issues that the Farm Bureau is focusing on right now regarding farm labor? We're working on a few different things uh, right now that have largely to do with workplace safety and health, uh, trying to figure out ways, for example, to make it safer for workers to work at night and working with the California Occupational Safety and Health Administration because there's a growing trend toward doing agricultural work at night. Uh, but that presents its own unique hazards, and the agency's been interested in that, and we're working with them on that. Uh, over the last five years, we've worked very closely with the same agency on uh, improving our regulations to prevent heat illness, uh, because we've had situations where workers have died from uh, not being adequately hydrated and becoming sick as a result of overexposure to heat. Thankfully, over the last five years or so, we've significantly reduced the number of, of illnesses and almost eliminated uh, the deaths that occur from heat illness. And that's a story I think that's a good one because it's a, it's a, it shows how, our, that how farmers and a regulatory agency can work together to accomplish something that's clearly to the benefit of all of us, including the workers. Yeah. What are some of the, um, the mandates that um, have allowed for the reduction in um, associated deaths from heat illness? Well, it's, it's things like providing shade whenever the temperature exceeds 80 degrees, making sure you provide water for everyone all day long that's, that's within a reasonable distance of where workers are actually working and encouraging them to drink that water uh, regularly. Uh, when someone is showing signs of heat illness, make sure you have a, a plan to be able to get emergency, uh, some kind of an emergency response there, either someone who's trained in first aid or to be able to get a first responder there like an ambulance in the event somebody is really, truly sick and training workers to recognize the signs and symptoms of heat illness, both in themselves and in their coworkers, so that everyone knows when it's time to raise an alarm bell and get someone some help if they need it, so that we can intervene early and prevent illnesses and injuries. Yeah. Um, well, we're just about out of time um, for our, our discussion. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today on the Farm Report. Um, when we return from the short break, Elizabeth Henderson will be joining us on the line. So stay tuned.
International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. This is the Farm Report. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm. Before the break, I explored California's farm workforce a little bit with Brian Little from the California Farm Bureau. Now I've got Elizabeth Henderson on the line to bring the discussion to the East Coast. Elizabeth Henderson traded her tenure as a university professor for a field of organic vegetables. She farmed at Peacework Farm in Wayne County, New York, growing fresh market produce for over 30 years. She's a member of the board of directors of the Northeast Organic Farming Association of New York, NOFA New York, and also serves on the board of the Agricultural Justice Project. In 2009, NOFA New York honored her with a Lifetime Achievement Award, and in 2014, EcoFarm presented her with their Advocate of Social Justice Award called the Justie. She has written two books, um, Sharing the Harvest, A Citizen's Guide to Community-Supported Agriculture, and a food book for a sustainable harvest for the 300 members of Peacework Organic Community Supported Agriculture, the farm that she worked at for over 30 years and it's, um, well, now in its 28th year. So maybe I've got my math wrong there, but Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today on the Farm Report. Good afternoon. Um, so, um, we're, you're coming in already into a discussion a little bit about uh, farm labor. So I wanted to start off, as I did with um, Brian Little earlier, um, by painting a picture of your respective state. So who makes up the agricultural labor force in New York, and what are the major crops that they work with? Well, there's a great deal of variety of who does the work on different kinds of farms in New York State. On uh some of the larger vegetable farms and some of the orchards. Um, a lot of the labor is um, migrant labor. And the I've talked to people from the Department of Labor, and they estimate that over 50% of the people working on those farms are undocumented um, migrants. But on most of the organic farms, from the polling that NOFA New York has done, our farms are on the smaller side, and most of the labor is either family labor or hired neighbors, um, friends, or often um, people with college degrees who hope to become farmers themselves. So on the organic farms, there are only really a very small percentage that are hiring migrant labor and just a handful that use H-2A labor. Um, so in terms of um, the kind of the the narrative that surrounds the farm worker, which we're exploring a little bit today on the show, I, I think a lot of times um, people to it, 
tend to assume that labor issues in terms of um, housing conditions or not having adequate access to breaks or things like that tend to correlate more strongly with conventional agriculture versus organic agriculture. But I wanted to kind of tune the conversation with you a little bit towards organic ag based on your experience. So you started or were involved in the creation of the Agricultural Justice Project, which you now sit on the board of, which um, its mission statement is to work to transform the existing agricultural system based on empowerment, justice, and fairness for all who labor from farm to retail. And I'm wondering what empowerment, justice, and fairness look like um, from the perspective of the Agricultural Justice Project and and particularly how to balance. One of the things that we were getting into earlier before the break with Brian on the line was the sort of the needs of the farmer um, or the farm owner operator and also the needs of the farm worker, um, specifically in terms of wages. We were talking about that. But so maybe you could just dig in a little bit about the project and what it does. Well, the Agricultural Justice Project has created a set of high bar standards for um, fair trade in the domestic food system. So standards for workers on farms, workers in other kinds of food businesses, and standards for the relationships between farms and the entities who buy farm produce, or the trading between um, among different kinds of food businesses as well. Our standards really cover all the way from the farm to the table. And we have negotiated those standards by farmers, farm workers, and other food system workers and managers sitting down together and figuring out what is realistic given the history of labor in the food system in the United States. And we've tried to set standards that are achievable but difficult, high bar. So living wages rather than minimum wages for everybody. Um, negotiated standards, negotiated contracts between farmers and the buyers of the farmers' products so that farmers aren't faced with the situation that they're faced with so often now, which is take it or leave it. This is the price that's going, and you either um, accept this price or go buy it from somebody else. So in in the... The understanding of the Agricultural Justice Project, I think this is um, shared by the people to the board of NOFA New York. There's a really tight connection between what workers are paid in the food system and the pricing that farmers are receiving. The prices that farmers get as a whole are not adequate. The farmers aren't getting a fair share of the final food dollar. Yeah. There are big companies in food in the United States who are getting a really um, decent return on investment, 25 30, 35% a year. If a farm is getting a 2% return on investment annually, they're doing extremely well. And that's a farm that's been established probably for a couple of generations. Um, most farms are doing well if they can cover their cost of production and provide wages for all the people who work there. And the return on investment might come when the farmer cashes out 
by selling the land for development so that the farmer can retire. That's really in my lifetime in this country, we have lost over 5 million farms. The number of farms has gone down from 7 million to just over 2 million. And that hasn't happened because people didn't want to farm. It's happened because uh, of concentration in the food system and, and because the prices that farmers get are not enough to cover their costs of production. People farm as long as they can, and then they just have to give up. Yeah. Well, and as you've mentioned, I mean, one of those very big costs of production is the the labor associated with growing um, food and crops. So fair wages um, are definitely part of the issue, but it's a complicated issue um, because, like you're saying, like farmers don't see a lot of the return value when they're they're selling, um, you know, if they're not direct marketing or, you know, it gets lost, shaved off in the middle somewhere. So in New York, um, the governor has proposed a $15 an hour pay floor for the fast food industry and state government workers, which would take effect by 2021 um, throughout the state um, sooner, 2019 in New York City. Um, so I think the, the current minimum wage is about nine is $9. So what um, would a $15 an hour, like you're saying the difference between a minimum wage and a living wage is $15 an hour, a living wage for when, if we could apply that to, to farm workers, let's imagine that um, it's happening throughout the state to, to include farm workers. Is that a living wage? And is it a fair wage in terms of what farmers can afford to pay? Well, there's no such thing as a living wage that's um, applicable everywhere. Uh, a living wage has to be adjusted for the cost of living in different parts of the country. Yeah. So where I live out in Wayne, Wayne County, New York, it would be way lower than what you would need to live in New York City. Um, but $15 is a pretty good start on a living wage. It's, it's more than a living wage for Wayne County, actually, where uh, a fair living wage is probably $12, $13 an hour. Um, but from the perspective of, of NOFA New York and the Agricultural Justice Project, we have to get to the point in this country where we're paying the people who do farm work decent wages with decent um, benefits, workers' compensation, health insurance, money to retire on. If we're going to have a food system that is locally based, growing high-quality food for the people of this state and this country, we need to have a supply of labor, of people who are respected and paid decently and compensated adequately for the important work that they do. And that means that farmers, like myself, have to really struggle to um, push for getting our fair share of the food dollar. And the, the the thing that's thrown up at organic farms is that we're, we're growing yuppie food. Well, organic farmers have a very strong sense of social justice, most of us, and would like to see our food provided to people of all income levels and all ethnicities. Uh, the money to pay for that food um, should come out of people's salaries, and it shouldn't come out of the pockets of farmers or, far or off the backs of farm workers the way it is now under our cheap food system. So there are 
so many things that need to be readjusted. A farm needs more money if the farm is going to be stocking carbon in the soil, helping mitigate against climate change, paying the farm family living wages, paying the people who work on the farm living wages. That money has to come from somewhere, and ideally it comes in the marketplace, and then the subsidies that have gone into all kinds of other things should be invested in helping low-income people pay for the higher cost of food. But there would be fewer really low-income people if everybody was making a living wage. 17% of the people who work in this country work in food system jobs, and the jobs at the bottom are filled by people of color and women, and they're not making enough money to buy decent food for themselves. So that's made up with out of food stamps, and then, you know, the taxpayers have to pay for the food stamps. Well, I think Walmart should pay adequate salaries and all those businesses, the fast food businesses and the big businesses, so that the workers make living wages and can afford to buy decent food themselves. Yeah. Um, so in terms of other, um, I, think, I, think, I think that's a really, it's a good place to start. Um, in terms of other things that the Agricultural Justice Project talks of in terms of um, empowerment and fairness for the labor force outside of wages, what are some of the other standards that you've looked into? Well, um, employers have to recognize the freedom of association of the people who work for them. And that means it could be as simple as just two employees coming and saying, we want to discuss some conditions of work that are inadequate here, or it could be all the way up to forming a union. But that freedom of association also needs to apply to farmers. So farmers have the right to associate with one another in order to better negotiate with the big buyers who have so much more power in the marketplace than they do. So our standards are parallel all the way up and down the food chain. Our standards also require that there be a good process for resolving conflict, either in a workplace or between buyers and sellers, without any threat of retaliation for raising a difficult issue. That's something that both workers and farmers suffer from. If you've um, heard anything about, you know, the integrators in the chicken business, um, the chicken farmers who complain about Tyson or Purdue get their um, the food for their chickens cut, or they, they get fewer chickens or poor quality chickens to raise. So the, the retaliation against them for making any complaint is, is instant and, and really painful. Well, that's the kind of thing that we need to change. And in terms of, so through the project, you offer a certification, or how how are you making these, working to make these changes? Well, the Agricultural Justice Project offers food justice certification, which can be used by any kind of food business or farm. 
from farm all the way to table. We also provide technical assistance, and on our website, there's a toolkit for farmers to help them develop high-quality um, employee handbooks uh, so that their labor policies are fair ones. And there are also samples of good contracts between a farm and a store that might be buying from them. So we do both technical assistance and the certification, and we've been involved in kind of behind the scenes um, trying to improve the standards and behavior of businesses that are making different kinds of uh, domestic fair trade claims in the marketplace. And um, are you seeing people take up the, the certification across the country? Is it nationwide? Is it more based in New York? What it, What's sort of the... the um... We're offering it all the way across the country, but um, it's being taken up very slowly because it is high bar. And because we're a tiny project with um, understaffed and underfunded, um, but What's encouraging is that we've had a, a much bigger impact, I think, on the whole dialogue around what people are saying and thinking about the food system. And we're kind of in the place where organic was when I, my farm was first certified back in 1985. It's just the, the, the early um, high-quality farms that are certifying with us, and it, it, it's not something that has any momentum yet. We have a ways to go. Um, one thing that I've been interested in in terms of exploring a little bit of the, the labor issue um, and the uh, just sort of the narrative of the farm worker is through my own experience, the the aspect of what you described happening in New York where smaller farms are using, um, employing a lot more college-educated people and maybe apprentice-level farms, um, apprentice-type employment situations. And I wonder if um, you've addressed that at all in the the agricultural um, justice standards, how to um, have a fair exchange with um, someone who might be coming and living on your farm for an educational experience? Yes, the AJP standards do cover interns or apprentices or trainees or whatever you call them. In the eyes of the Department of Labor, all of those categories are employees. So under our standards, you have to pay people at least minimum wage for the hours that they work. But if you are truly giving an educational um, experience where the intern or apprentice has the opportunity to write a learning contract laying out what they hope to learn and can evaluate that with the farmer who's their trainer through the season so that the apprentice is really learning the skills that they want and need, then we consider that a fair deal. Hmm. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. A learning farm can pay yeah. can pay less than a living wage. They can pay a minimum wage per hour, but must compensate by providing the learning that the uh, apprentice is looking for. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Well, Elizabeth, we're just about out of time, so I thank you very much for joining us today. Um, yeah, and thanks everyone for listening. Okay. Well, thanks for having me and. 
I think change is possible, and I hope we uh, raise the minimum wage, and farmers get it too. Me too. Thanks, Elizabeth. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.